Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called Revealed, a study of Jesus in the Old Testament. Our hope is that our eyes will be open to see that all scripture points to Jesus. Thanks for joining us. In case you missed it, we're starting a new series this morning. Uh, you probably noticed uh, with the video, with the banners, with the stickers, with the trifolds there on your sheet, this series this summer is called Revealed. And uh, what is this series all about? Well, that video gave us a kind of a hint, but if you've been a part of our church family for any length of a time, uh, you might know that over the last year and a half, we walked our way through the Gospel of Luke together. And in that series in Luke, we reminded ourselves the purpose was we wanted to spend time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. And I just have to say, personally, in my 15 years of being a pastor here at Cherry Hills, that was one of my favorite series that we've ever done, because honestly, there's just nothing better than spending time with Jesus. He is full of grace and truth. He is full of invitation invitation and challenge. He is worthy of all glory and honor and power. And so we thought, let's keep spending time with Jesus. If you were here the last couple weeks of that series, at the end of it, we looked at two passages in the last chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 24, where after Jesus' resurrection, he appears to his disciples, and two times as he's appearing to them, as he's explaining things to them, he says to them that all of Scripture is pointing to him. In other words, he reveals that the Old Testament and the New Testament, as that video said, aren't two separate stories. They're actually one story, and they're the story about God redeeming his people through the person of Jesus. In fact, just to remind ourselves of this, would you read verse 24, 27 of Luke out loud on your notes there with me? It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, we talked about how great it would have been to have that conversation recorded. He explained how all the scriptures were pointing to himself. Unfortunately, we don't have that conversation recorded, but what we do have is we have the Old Testament. And as we begin to look at the Old Testament with eyes that are opened, we begin to see that Jesus is revealed all throughout the Old Testament. He is, in fact, everywhere And so as we prayed about what to do this summer, we thought it was kind of natural to take those words from Luke 24 and use it as a springboard to continue to spend time with Jesus, but spend time with him in the Old Testament. In fact, here's the purpose of this series this summer. If you're on your notes with me, we're doing this series so that our eyes may be opened to see that all scripture points to Jesus. To see that this is all one story, a story that you and I are invited to participate in. Just like those disciples on the road to Emmaus, we are praying that our eyes might be opened to see Jesus. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend 10 weeks looking at 10 passages where Jesus is revealed in the Old Testament. Now obviously, if you have your trifold there, why don't you take that and just look at that for a second here. We're only taking 10 examples of where we can see Jesus clearly in the Old Testament when there's so many more that we could have covered. And so part of the reason why we provide something like that for you is we want you to take that home. We want you to understand that the Bible is not a disjointed two stories. It's one story, one story that is pointing to the person of Jesus. So we hope you find things like that helpful in your personal study. Again, our prayer here is like the disciples on the road to Emmaus 
that our eyes will be open to see Jesus revealed. So let's pray for that, and then we'll look at our first passage this morning. Would you bow once again with me? Lord, we're looking forward to how you might open our eyes this summer. Just as you did with those disciples on the road to Emmaus and later in Luke 24 as well. We want to have hearts that yearn for you. And without your help, though, we cannot see you. So we pray for your help, that your spirit would come. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds. Not just for good information, but for transformation. Help us as we continue to spend time with Jesus to learn from him how to be like him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as I thought about kicking off the series this morning, I thought it would be only natural to look at what many believe is the first mention of Jesus in the Old Testament apart from his role in creation. And that comes in Genesis chapter three. So if you have your own Bible there, I encourage you to turn to Genesis three. If you don't have your own Bible, we always have Bibles in the seat somewhere underneath you there. And this is gonna be an easy one. In those Bibles, you can find Genesis three on page two of those black Bibles. Genesis 3 is perhaps one of the most famous uh, stories in all of Scripture. It's the story of Adam Adam and Eve and how sin enters into the world and the consequences of that sin. But perhaps you didn't know there's also a hint in Genesis 3 of God's plan for dealing with that sin. And that's what I want to look at with you this morning. First, we're going to unpack the consequences of sin. And then second, we're going to look at God's plan for dealing with that sin and how it's fulfilled in the New Testament through Jesus. Now, for the sake of time, I'm skipping down to verse 7, which is immediately after Adam and Eve eat from the tree God forbidden them to eat from. And I'll just say this again. These are some of the most significant verses in Scripture about what it means to be human in a fallen world. Like this explains our human state. So let's look at Genesis 3, verse 7 together. It says, Then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field." By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. 
Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, those are angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Friends, we are living in a world today that is trying to find a solution to a problem that hasn't been properly identified. Everywhere we look, we see instances of this. For example, we are in a mess morally right now in in this world. Things that were once considered wrong are considered right and vice versa. We see terrorism on an unprecedented scale today, even yesterday again in London. There is scandal. There is atrocities that take place. There is racism. Listen, we offer solutions to all of these problems as humans. And yet none of them ever seem to get to the root cause. We are in a mess politically. And the divide is only growing deeper between us. And this is true across every continent. We are in a mess economically. We might not know this as Americans, but we are in the midst of the worst global crisis since the Great Depression. America is running up deficits at an unprecedented rate. Entire cities are on the verge of declaring bankruptcy in this country. If you work for the state of Illinois, you know what I'm talking about right now. I could go on and on and on describing the messes that we're in, but here's the point. All of these problems are simply a symptom of a greater problem. And according to the Bible, it can all be traced right back here to Genesis chapter 3. Whatever you believe about the Bible, maybe you're not ready to make that leap, but according to Scripture, Genesis 3 says that all the problems of this world are the result of the consequences of sin. They're the result of the consequences of sin. In fact, in Genesis 3, we see four consequences immediately that result from sin. And we're going to walk through these. My hope is you are very depressed by the end of this. (laughs) The first consequence of sin, if you're on your notes, is that our relationship with God was broken. Our relationship with God was broken. In verse 8, we're told God comes walking into the garden in the cool of day. Now get this, when the Bible uses the word walking, specifically in the Hebrew word it's using there, it's not just talking about literally God was walking. There's a greater meaning behind it. It's an expression, an idiom of something else. It's used in other places. For example, Abraham walked with Lot. David walked with Jonathan. It was an expression describing relationship, friendship, fellowship. And as you read Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, listen, that was always God's design and purpose for you with him. We were designed to walk with God in friendship and fellowship and relationship, to know him and to be known by him, to share life with him. That is always the beginning of the gospel. The gospel always starts with the idea that God wanted relationship with us as human beings. And yet, when Adam and Eve eat that fruit, we see immediately what do they do? 
they hide. They hide from God, and that's something that has been reenacted by human beings ever since, including you and including me. Why do they hide? We're told it's because they realize they are naked. Now, when Adam says, the reason I hid from you is because I was naked in the Bible, just like walking is an expression for something bigger than just physically walking, so too is nakedness an expression for something bigger than not having clothes on. It's an expression saying something has been shattered. Something has been broken between us and God. If you are a parent, you experience this at a very young age. Children, when they realize they've done something wrong, they're not able to totally hide yet, but they do this thing. Let's say they steal a cookie from the cookie jar, just to use the classic example. Have you ever had a child who just goes like this then? Like, if you can't see me, or if I can't see you, you can't see me, right? Why are they hiding? Because they're naked. They're ashamed. They know what they've done is wrong. And what we see here is Adam and Eve doing the very same thing. Something fundamental in the relationship God intended them to have has been shattered. In contemporary language, this is described as alienation. We, according to Genesis 3, have been alienated from God. We have been cut off from the relationship we were intended to have. John Stott calls this the most dreadful of all sin's consequences, and I have to agree. He writes, man's highest destiny is to know God and to be in personal relationship with God. Man's chief claim to nobility is that he was made in the image of God and is therefore capable of knowing him. But this God whom we are meant to know and whom we ought to know is a moral being, a holy being, and we are sinners. Consequently, our sin blots out God's face from us. We are dead in our transgressions and sins, Ephesians 2, 1, no longer walking with God. We are alienated from God. What was once a relationship of intimacy, friendship, fellowship has now been reduced to those three enemies we each face every single day, fear, guilt, and shame. Do you know what I'm talking about? Fear, guilt, and shame, the result of our nakedness. We walk around with these every day and we see the result of it in verse 24. We can no longer be in God's presence. He is a holy God, and our sin has created a barrier between us and him, and this alienation is so complete, we are cast out from the garden, and we have no way back unless we are aided by God himself. This is what Paul means when he writes these words in Romans 3, starting in verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I don't get what he's trying to say there, do you? Something has been broken. Who we were intended to be with God, it's not taking place anymore. If you're on your notes, just to, again, make the point, we have gone from walking with God to alienation from God. Walking with God to alienation from God. The second consequence of sin is that we now experience death. Did you know that was never God's intention? 
We now experience death. This was the warning God had given Adam and Eve about eating from the tree, and yet they did not heed the warning. And listen, before you blame Adam Adam and Eve, I've done that. Like, man, if they would have just made the right choice. Part of understanding the gospel, part of understanding what it means to be human, is getting to the point in your life where you recognize, I am Adam. I am Eve. I would have made the exact same decision they made. In fact, I make that decision almost every single day. I, too, have turned my back on God. Now, at first glance, it looks like this consequence doesn't take place. They don't die, do they? But they do die. You see, according to the Bible, death is not how we think about it so much today as a separation from our soul, from our body. It's primarily a separation of our spirit from God. The spirit is the thing that connected us to God. It was the thing that made us... um, Walk with God. And yet we're told here, as soon as Adam and Eve grabbed that fruit that had been broken, our spirits died inside of us. We had been cut off from God. And the result of that is progressively our soul and our bodies began to die and decay as well. But I just have to say the death of our spirit, that's the greatest tragedy of all here. That thing that connected us intimately with him. And ever since that moment, friends, we have been at war against death. It's everywhere. I I have a picture of a glass of water, clean, pure water, and all you need is one drop of dye, and that whole glass of water will become that color. Apart from Jesus, nobody can win the war of death. Apart from Jesus, nobody ever will. Death is what makes us human. It's what binds us together. It's universal. We do, why do bad things happen in this world? That's a question people ask all the time, right? Why do bad things happen in this world? Now, while I would never give this answer to a specific situation, and I beg you not to do it as well, the answer of the 10,000 foot view is because of Genesis 3. Death is all around us. And it's the natural consequences of sin. Of Genesis 3, Paul writes, the wages of sin is death. That's not just a verse that we should memorize. That's describing our human condition. The wages of sin is death, and we come face to face with it every day. Do you have an aching body right now? The wages of sin is death. Do you have heartbreak? The wages of sin is death. Tragedy. Natural disasters. I could go on. All of these are pointing to the stain of death that has come into this world as a result of our sin. Depressed yet? The third result of our sin is that our relationships with one another are divided. Our relationships with one another are divided. What was intended to be has been divided. We see this immediately in verse seven when Adam and Eve cover themselves with fig leaves. Who are they covering themselves up at first? God's not walking in the garden yet from each other. Soon as sin crept into their hearts, they begin to hide themselves from one another. Something has shifted in their relationship and then of course it gets even worse. You look down at verse 12 and the blame game begins. Adam throws his wife under the bus, all right? It wasn't me. This is the woman you gave me. And then Eve shifts the blame to the serpent here. Nobody wants to take responsibility. 
When the connection with God is broken, irresponsibility, cowardice, lying, jealousy, envy, anger, hatred, you name it, all that, all that began to divide us in our relationships. You know, I used to read verses 14 and following as God cursing Adam and Eve in the sense that because you did this, all these things I'm going to now make happen to you. But I agree with most scholars who simply see this as God saying, because you did this, here are the natural effects of what are going to take place between me and you and between you and others. The vertical relationship that you and I were meant to have, it's broken. The horizontal relationships that you were meant to have with others, it's broken. We see this in verse 16 when he says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That word desire is similar to the word rule. The idea is no longer are Adam and Eve going to live in that one flesh union that God had designed them to live in where they mutually served one another where they took the lower place in their relationship. Now it's going to be a relationship of power, of struggle. There's a whole message in verse 16 in and of itself, right? How some people have taken this to say, yeah, that's the man, the man's supposed to rule over the wife, and that means I can do whatever I want. No, it doesn't. This is the result of sin. Jesus comes on the scene and says, mutually submit to one another out of love. That's how it was always intended to be. Don't have time for that message. What he's saying, though, is that something fundamental has shifted in our relationships with each other. Right? We were supposed to be one flesh, and now we have become divided. And that has trickled down, not just from the marriage relationship, but to every relationship. And you see it immediately in Genesis chapter 4, when Adam and Eve's children, one of them kills the other. Something has gone wrong in our vertical relationships with one another Just as that has been broken, our relationship with God has been broken, so we now have divides between another. Listen, again, this is like, all I need to do is come to your house and see this, probably. All you need to do is come to my house and see this. This is not how it was meant to be. The last consequence of sin, I'm not going to spend too much time here, but it's worth mentioning, is that our relationship with the earth has been damaged. Verse 17 says, instead of just going out there and tilling the ground, and up comes flowers and food, just like that. Now thorns and thistles, and even though the Bible doesn't say this, I'm going to say it, weeds, are going to be a constant part of our life. You just need to come over to my backyard and see my garden to know this is true. Paul speaks of this brokenness of the world in Romans 8, when he declares, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Did you know that the planet we live on is groaning, waiting, waiting to be restored to what it was intended to be in the beginning? So there you have it. Brokenness, death, alienation, selfishness. We see this every day. Is there any hope? Is there any hope after the fall? Well, there is hope. And we see the first glimpse of hope in verse 15 of Genesis 3, speaking to the serpent who we know from the writers of the New Testament is more than just a serpent. This is Satan, our enemy, God says these words. Maybe you missed them at first, but would you read them out loud with me on your notes there? He says, 
And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Do you know what enmity means? Means war, hostility, conflict. From that day on, he says to them, there will be conflict between you and Satan. Because you gave him a foothold in your life, there is going to be war. And I experience this every day. I don't know about you. My life bears witness to that. It is a battle. Life is a war. It's a battle. It's a struggle. Temptations come at me from everywhere. And yet, the second part of that verse, there's an incredible gospel prophecy. Do you see it? This curse on the serpent and on us, this war that's going to exist, turns into an incredible word of grace for us. A word that has been described since the second century AD as the first gospel. Hence the title of this message. If you're following on your notes, in Genesis 3.15, God prophesies of an offspring of Eve who will crush the enemy. God prophesies of an offspring of Eve who will crush the enemy. Don't miss the picture God is painting for us. I want you to imagine a a group of people, a family, and into the midst of them comes slithering as fast as it can, and you know how fast snakes can be a snake. Right into the midst of this family circle, a poisonous, venomous snake. And so one of the people in their family, they begin to try to stomp on the head of the snake. And eventually, he or she succeeds in stomping on it. However, before that takes place, we're told that the snake bites the heel of that person and inflicts a fatal wound. Poison goes into them, and they die. That's the picture. What God is saying, and this is amazing if you believe that the snake is not just a snake, but is Satan. God is saying that one of the descendants of Adam and Eve, the offspring of a woman, a human being, our very flesh, is going to one day come and destroy the enemy. But in the act of destroying the enemy, he will take a fatal wound. He will take a fatal wound. Some believe verse 21 of Genesis 3, if you still have it open, is actually a foreshadowing of the way this will be accomplished. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. In order for God to make garments of skin, what had to happen? An animal had to die. A sacrifice had to be made. What we see here is that a human being is going to come, and he's going to destroy sin and death, and yet in the process, he will sacrifice his life. He will cover us, not with an animal skin, but with his own blood. He will atone, is what that word means, for our sin. I wonder who that could be. The snake crusher is coming, and his name is Jesus. Here in Genesis 3.15, we have a prophecy of the cross of Jesus Christ when Satan would strike at the heel, and yet Jesus would crush his head. It might be midnight in the Garden of Eden. Paradise is lost, and yet, do you see it? There's still grace. There's still grace. God's curse upon Satan meant that his own son, who would be born of a woman, would one day become a curse for us. Satan would strike his heel, but Jesus would crush his head. 
Indeed, we know how the bruising of Christ took place. It all started in another garden, didn't it? We call it the Garden of Gethsemane. And it culminated at the cross as Satan finally succeeded, so it seems, at striking back at God and stop his meddling in human affairs. It was bruising with a vengeance. You can read about it in the Gospels. It included the hatred of the religious leaders, the very people who should have recognized who he was. The mockings of the crowd, the incredible beatings, the flogging, culminating in this offspring of Eve being put upon a cross. It looked like Satan had accomplished his goal. However, three days later, Jesus Christ rose triumphantly from a tomb and Satan's power over us was broken at last. The snake crusher has come. If you're following on your notes here, this prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection. And I just want us to step back for a moment and just think about how incredible this is. Even in the very beginning, the very beginning, when all hope seemed lost, when the consequences of sin seem insurmountable, God has a plan. And his plan is Jesus. His plan is Jesus. We see this idea of Jesus fulfilling this prophecy all throughout the New Testament. Uh, and we want to make those connections, but I want to draw our attention to one specific result of Jesus fulfilling this, which can be found in Romans chapter 5. I want to reveal Jesus to you as the second Adam. So if you have your Bible still, I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 14. Again, this is what we're hoping to do through this series. We're going to look at the Old Testament and then see how Jesus is revealed in the New Testament. So Romans 5, starting in verse 14, if you're using the Black Bible, you can find this on page 785. In Romans 5, Paul, using Genesis 3, calls Jesus the second Adam. God has sent him as the second Adam. He is the serpent crusher who reversed the consequences of sin. And we're going to see, starting in verse 14, how God kind of juxtaposes. He shows, hey, here's what happened because of Adam, but here's what can happen because of Christ. The first Adam and the second Adam. So just keep that in mind as we're going through these words. Notice the consequences that began in the Garden of Eden are restored beginning in that Garden of Gethsemane. It says, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. That word pattern is significant. Paul's saying Adam was a type. He was a foreshadowing of one who was going to come. Who is that? Well, it's Jesus. Verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, and that is what we just discovered, death is all around us, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. That's what we just read about in Genesis 3. And yet the gift followed many trespasses. And what did Jesus bring? Read that word out loud. Justification. We'll talk about that. 
For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Now read verse 19 out loud on your notes with me there. It says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Now, I know that's a lot there, but do you see the juxtaposition? Adam brought cursing. Jesus reversed the curse. Adam brings death. Jesus brings life. Adam brought alienation. Christ brings that beautiful word justification, which just means we can be made right with God. Adam brought brokenness to our relationship with God, to our relationship with one another. Christ brings restoration in our relationship with God and in our relationship with one another. No longer do we have to go for power. We can mutually serve out of love again. Adam was naked and afraid. Christ, we're told here, listen, clothes us with his righteousness. Adam was banished from the garden. We can have confidence to once again walk with God. Genesis 3 teaches that every one of us in this room is Adam. But Romans 5 reveals that by the grace of God, the second Adam has come. The second Adam has come, and he being bruised for our transgressions and sins has crushed Satan's head. So if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, if you have trusted in what he has done for you in the cross and resurrection, and you believe he is sitting at the right hand in power of God's throne even right now, it means two things for you today. First, if you're falling on your notes, the second Adam covers your nakedness with his righteousness. He covers your nakedness with his righteousness. Again, remember, nakedness, more than just clothes. He covers your shame, your guilt, and your fear with his righteousness. No more fig leaves, no more animal skins, but robes of righteousness. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Please read this out loud with me on the screen. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I've said this a hundred times here. What that means is that when God looks at you, does he see Adam? Does he see Eve? If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, he sees his son. Literally, Jesus has clothed you with his righteousness. So you stand before God, not in fear, guilt, and shame, but you stand before him as righteous. The second thing this means for us, if you're falling on your notes, is that the second Adam ended our banishment from God's presence both now and forever. The second Adam ended our banishment from God's presence both now and forever. How did he do that? Well, he took on flesh. He did what Adam could not do. This is what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 2. Look at the screen again. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in our humanity 
so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You remember the sword that's placed at the garden? What does that sword represent? It represents that we're no longer welcome in God's presence. We are alienated from God's presence. Something has been broken. The only way to get back to God is to go through that sword, and that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He took the sword. He took the sword for what I deserved. And so if you're in Christ, this just means that the curse of death, it's been broken. It's been broken in your life, and it's why Paul can declare triumphantly these words in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, which are on your notes there. Can you read it with me? For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Finishing 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says it this way in great celebration. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Read this with me. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The serpent crusher shares his victory with us. Can you see why this is called the first gospel? Because the offspring of Eve, the second Adam, has crushed Satan's head, you no longer need walk naked and afraid, but you can be clothed in Christ's righteousness. And because you are clothed in Christ's righteousness, you are welcome once again to walk with him in fellowship and friendship. So where are you today? Like, be honest, what garden are you living in right now? Are you living in the Garden of Eden still? You still covering yourself with guilt, fear, and shame? Do you still feel constantly the weight of the consequences of sin in your life? Do you have no hope? You don't have to have that. You see, God sent a second Adam. We call him the serpent crusher. And he came just for you. Just for you. So my question for you is pretty straightforward as we close and as we prepare to take communion together. If you're falling on your notes, will I share in the victory of the one who crushed the enemy? Will I share in the victory of the one who crushed the enemy? That is the invitation God gives every son of Adam and daughter of Eve. It is a victory that you can experience right here now in your life. You can live differently. You can live in your vertical relationship with God differently, and you can live differently horizontally with one another. But it's also a victory he gives for all eternity. As we prepare our hearts for communion, let's just take a moment of reflection. Let's allow the word of God uh, to do what it does so well, to penetrate into our hearts. I'll pray. We'll spend a moment in silence, then I'll explain what we're going to be doing in communion. So Lord, how can we ever fathom and grasp how deep and how wide your plan is? That since the very beginning, your desire has been to have relationship with us. And even though we have broken that, you have done everything to restore it. 
We praise you this morning for sending the snake crusher, for the one who took a blow that we deserved, but won a victory that we couldn't win. We spend some time now in reflection. What do you want us to hear this morning? What do you want us to do? How can we respond to your word? Lord, I pray for those who are still living under the weight of sin. Today, would you open their eyes to see that your desire is to clothe them with your righteousness, to welcome them into your presence, to walk with them. If there are some who have not yet made that decision, oh Lord, help them to see the invitation that is open to them. For those of us who have received that invitation, we need to be reminded today that the victory is ours. That we can no longer need to live in brokenness in our relationship with you, but we can come to you boldly. That we no longer need to be involved in a power struggle in marriage or in our other relationships, but we can serve, we can love. Because of his victory, we can stand in victory even today. Help us to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.